may be seated. I encourage you to take out your Bible, opening once again to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1 this morning, and we continue in introductory matters regarding the book of Revelation as we've committed ourselves to a sermon series that will take us through this particular book of the Bible. And over the past several weeks, we've just been looking at the John's prologue where he kind of clues us in, uh, even at the outset, a little bit more about what his book is about, uh, kind of how he got it. It came from God the Father to the Son to the angel to John to be distributed to you and I. Speaks to the significance, the importance of this, the message of this book to the church of Jesus Christ, both in John's day and in our day as well. This morning, we'll continue looking at what we're calling the salutation of John's letter. It's the form of a letter. And in verse 4, John addresses it as such. He gives us that opening salutation, identifying himself and his recipients, and then giving just that general word of greeting uh, that we've come to see in, in, in the New Testament letter. So let's look together at the Word of God. Revelation chapter 1, our focus this morning will be verses 4 and 5, but I'm going to start reading in verse 1 and read through verse 9. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. And even so, Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Well, we will stop there for this morning because our focus is verses 4 and 5 of this salutation. And Last week, we came together, and we, uh, we kind of talked a little bit about the historical context. And my hope is that that wasn't just dry detail, because the historical context absolutely matters. It is the situation or the circumstance, circumstances to which God says, I have a word, a message for you. We saw the circumstances, the context was both for John himself on the island of Patmos, but also for the seven churches to whom he writes. It was a, a time of persecution a time of hardship as they're facing the, the Roman emperor Domitian in the first century and all the hardships and afflictions that he was pouring out upon uh, the people of God because Domitian himself demanded to be called Lord, God, and King, and refusal to do so got you punished. 
It got John banished to the island of Patmos, uh, a, a relatively deserted island. He's not the only one there. He's probably working in a marble quarry, which was typical of uh, the slaves there on the island of Patmos. He's at the age of probably around 95 years old, give or take a few years, an old-aged elderly man, the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's writing to these churches who are facing their own hardships and afflictions. And that context matters because that context demands a message that comes from God, and that message, as we saw last week, is grace and peace. We continue this morning in that salutation, and what is a salutation? We know, I guess if you still write letters today, you, you usually open up a letter with a, a brief greeting, um, the most common one being, dear so-and-so, or my dear, you know, whoever the person is, and it's more or less a formality. If you still write letters, maybe if you use a salutation in an email, you probably don't give a whole lot of thought to how you're addressing the salutation. Your thought is more about the message itself that you're going to communicate. You probably just write out dear so-and-so or their person's name. The question is, is that what's happening here in the book of Revelation? Because if you're like me, you read through the salutation, you just kind of keep going. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is. And it, it, you know, I've read this before. Paul's letters start that way. John, in, in his other writings, uh, writes like that. The New Testament writers, do we just kind of, is that what's happening here? Is this just kind of a, a New Testament church formality? Well, I want to make the argument this morning that what we have here is the gateway into the book of Revelation. That these are not just mere formality. This is not just John being a nice guy in the way that he's starting the letter. But what John is actually doing here is opening the gateway into the book of Revelation. And in, in, in this salutation, we find the blessing that was previously mentioned in verse 3. Go back and look at verse 3 with us. We, we've talked about this in, in recent weeks. Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. Now, that is a universal promise of blessing that God gives to the recipients of this letter. Now, let me stop there. Why do I say universal? John clearly states here that this letter is being written to seven churches. Why are we saying that this is not a promise of blessing to only seven churches? Why are we saying that this is a universal blessing, verse 3, a blessing to all churches in all places in all times? It's because, as we looked at last week, and this will come up again this morning, so I'm taking the time with it. The number seven in the book of Revelation is symbolic. It's used over and over in the book of Revelation to signify completion, perfection. It's, it's it to signify fullness. And so while John is indeed writing to seven real churches, seven real churches with real members in real context with real problems, these letters are addressed to them. He is also simultaneously writing to the fullness of the church of Jesus Christ in all places, at all times, in all situations throughout time. Every church throughout time is summed up in these seven churches. And we'll see this more when we get into the letters to the seven churches. 
We'll see how, how John himself, under the inspiration of God, applies it universally, the letters to those universally. But it's every Christian who is meant to receive the blessing of the book of Revelation, not just those in John's day, but every church throughout all the ages of the church over the past 2,000 years, God himself says to you, grace and peace. Grace being the God's favor to undeserving sinners, right? We know that term. We know the idea that God is, is benevolent toward people that don't deserve it. He's kind to people. That he, he recognizes the situation that they're in. Uh, they deserve it. They've done it to themselves, but yet he steps in and does for them what they can't possibly do for themselves, what they don't deserve for him to do, but he steps in and he is kind and benevolent, benevolent and, and makes loving demonstrations toward them in a way that he doesn't do for all people. It's grace. And grace reaches its consummate demonstration in the death of Jesus Christ. We see it in Titus, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is full, clear grace, the giving of his son, Jesus Christ. But there's also grace to you and peace. Peace being the fruit. Grace is the root. Peace is what you have as a result of God's grace. And it is peace that comes through the grace of Jesus Christ. Paul writes about this in Romans 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's signifying a right relationship with God. We who were previously the enemies of God now have been made right with God through the cleansing of our sins, through the forgiveness of our sins, through the grace of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins. Here, there is a blessing that, that John is giving to us, a blessing, a universal blessing to all who hear the words of the book of Revelation and who heed the book of the Revelation. And the blessing is in Christ you have God's grace, which is the root of the message that's to come, and the fruit is peace with God. This is where historical context matters, because I can see it in your faces. You're sitting there, and it's like, what does this have to do with anything? We've heard this before. This is the message to a people who are facing persecution, who are facing hardship and affliction, and their lives are in danger. They are, they are facing Domitian and all the things that he comes in. Here, the blessing is, in spite of your circumstances and feeling like you're lost, you're alienated, you're feeling like no one cares, feeling like God has forgotten you, feeling like life is spiraling out of control and he's not on his throne. If you will hear and heed this, know this, God is on his throne despite what it feels like to you, despite what your circumstances tell your heart about God. The blessing is grace and you have peace with God through Christ this morning. This is the blessing. But it doesn't stop there. Covenant Life Church. There's something we have to settle in our hearts. I have to settle it. We have to settle it before we go any further in the study. And that is what I previously mentioned. 
that verse 4 is not just a formality. That this salutation where John says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him. We have got to stop there in our reading and, and, and ask ourselves, what is the blessing there? The blessing of verse 3 that's promised. And it's this, as the aged old apostle John is enduring his own banishment on the island of Patmos. He's old, he's frail, his body aches, he's, he has no family, he has no friends. If anyone had the place to ask God what is happening, I was one of the apostles of your son. I walked with him in his life and ministry. I've served faithfully in the New Testament church, yet here I am banished on an island simply because of my devotion to Jesus. That one, in all of his hardship, is writing to Christian churches, seven of them around Asia Minor, who they themselves are going through their own persecution because of their devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's writing to us as well because of the symbolism of the seven churches. He's writing to encourage, to bless. That those who are facing head-to-head -head conflict, and tell me if this is you this week, facing head-to-head -head conflict with the enemy of the seed of the woman, with the enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ, the enemy who will, is stopping at nothing to destroy them and you and me, whether by means of persecution, whether by means of religion, materialism, consumerism, compromise in the face of hardship, in the face of affliction, in the face of discouragement, in the face of sickness and illness. You have in John's letter the words of a dying man to the church, dying men. This is what we have to settle in our hearts. This is not just a dry, boring, dull, general salutation, dear church, seven churches, from John. He has framed this for us to say, I know your hardships. I know your afflictions. I know what you're going through. I'm going through them too. And God has promised a blessing. If, oh, if you will hear and heed. These are God's words from me, a dying man, to you, dying men and women, in our own struggles. And here's his message. Grace and peace. These words are our very life. Grace and peace. These are words we have to cling to. These are words that we must not just hear, but what does the verse 3 say? The promise of blessing is those for, for those who hear and heed the word of God, who heed God's word, grace and peace. These are words to be applied practically in our lives day in and day out. And that's what I want us to consider this morning together. Grace and peace, it's so easy to run past them. These are God's words from a dying man to dying men to you and I. We've seen them before. What makes these so special? What makes this so powerful that this is the blessing of God? Look at verse 4 again. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. 
grace to you and peace. The question is, where's the power with that? Here it comes. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Do you see it? It's the Trinity. We have on display here grace and peace to you promised from our triune God. And this is where the power of grace and peace comes from. This is what we have to cling to. These are the words of God to a dying man to be passed along to dying men. Grace and peace. Our hope is rooted not just in a couple of Greek words. Our hope is in the one who communicates and is holding this grace and peace together for us. What is a triune God? Let's start there this morning. Nobody knows. <laughs> Nobody understands. I mean, we can talk about the Trinity. We can talk about three and one, and it's true. But the truth is, the understanding of a triune God is, is, is far beyond us. It's a concept we, we can't fully explain. Now, we can say some right things about it, but we can't exhaust it. So what can we say about our triune God? Well, we can begin with, he's one. <laughs> he is one God, one being, one self-existent, eternal unchanging, immeasurable, incomprehensible, uncreated being who will never end. One. Everyone else and everything else is in a category all its own. Everything, everything that is, every angel, every person, every matter of creation is distinguished from this one who was uncreated, all-powerful, all-knowing, unchanging, immeasurable, we are something altogether different. But this one has expressed his fullness in order to help us understand, has expressed his fullness in Scripture as, it, as existing in three persons. One God existing in three persons, yet undivided. And they being the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, the way that the scripture reveals to us the nature of this, this triune nature of God is, is two ways. One, it's in how the Father, Son, and Spirit play together. How they respond to one another. How they relate to one another. It's a, and, and that relationship between the Father, Son, and Spirit throughout scripture becomes a pattern for the Christian life. It becomes a pattern for what we aspire to in the Christian life. And that's one way the Trinity is revealed to us, just the, the way that these, these three in one relate to one another. But the second way that the Trinity is revealed in the Bible is in what we call the, the economy of redemption. The economy of redemption. That's a mouthful. That's not language we go around using a lot. But the economy of redemption speaks of the outworking of our salvation, the salvation of sinners, of you and I, the outworking of salvation through the three persons of the Trinity, the different tasks that they perform in order to bring about the salvation of a sinful soul. 
And if we were going to be overly simplistic about this, we, we, we could frame it this way, that God the Father is the architect of the great plan of redemption. That before the foundation of the world, it was the eternal God, one God before anything was, who has a plan and a determination, a plan for his glory and the glory of his son that, that's going to be played out perfectly. He's the architect. He's the planner, if you will. And then the son is the accomplisher of what the father plans. Uh, the father has a plan, but it has to be accomplished. It has to be fulfilled. And the son comes in and accomplishes all that is necessary for the father's plan to come to pass. And then the Holy Spirit is the agent. The agent, the one who takes what the son has accomplished and applies it to the life of a soul. He takes what the Son has done in accordance with the will of the Father and brings it to pass. He does what must be done in you and in me in order so that the Father, all that the Father has planned and all that the Son has accomplished will come to pass. The economy of redemption. The distinctive parts that they all play. Everyone necessary. And right here at the beginning of the book of Revelation, this God, our one God, is presented in his triune distinction to say to you and I, I know your struggle. I know what it is to live in this Genesis 3 world. I told you all the way back in the Garden of Eden that this conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, man, this is going to go on. That this world is going to be a battlefield. That your soul is going to be a battlefield. And right off the bat, it feels like circumstances are overwhelming. Circumstances may win. There's a promise of blessing, grace and peace. And we're going to stamp this blessing with our triune existence. We're going to present ourselves in our triune glory to say to you, we assure you all that is required to bring about what was promised in the covenant of grace. Those, those promises that were made to, to Adam and to Abraham and to Moses and to David and to Israel in the new covenant and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And where sometimes it feels like, I mean, I hear it, I get it, I, I've, but it just I look around and it just seems chaotic. We're presenting ourselves in, as our triune existence to promise you all that we've promised will come to pass. Let's look at these three descriptions together because this is the power of grace and peace. Verse 4, again, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's the Father. I told you just a moment ago that in the, the great economy of redemption, the Father is seen as the architect. He's the planner. He's sovereign. He's in control. He's the one who, Scripture tells us, even before the foundation of the world, the first elect of God, the Father, was the Son. He chose the Son to fulfill His eternal plans and purposes for His glory. And He and the Son together send the Spirit to, to accomplish, to, to apply all that's been accomplished. But in this description here of God the Father in verse 4, the one who is and who was and who is to come. What is that? 
Well, it's an allusion to the Old Testament. I've told you, I think in every week, that Revelation quotes and alludes to the Old Testament more than any other book in the New Testament, and it's not even close. And so all, we're going to keep going back and, and seeing what's John talking about. And this, this title for the Father comes from God's own words in Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, we have the burning bush with Moses, who's standing in the presence of Almighty God, and God is revealing himself to Moses. You remember? And there, uh, God is, is sending Moses out, and, and Moses asks God, if I come to the people of Israel, and they say to me, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God gives, them a very, God gives Moses a peculiar answer. He says, tell them, I am who I am, right? I am who I am. And that can be translated, uh, I was who I was, I am who I am, I will be who I will be. The point is, I will always be what I have always been, is the point there. It speaks to God's eternality. It speaks to the fact that he is everlasting. And Revelation 1-4 here, where it says, from him who is and who was and who is to come, that's God's own commentary on Exodus 3, on what he said when he said, I am who I am. And the point for you and I is this. When God comes to the seven churches and to you and I here in the 21st century, and he says to you, blessings, grace and peace to you, he stamps that here and says, I want you to know that it is I, the God of Moses, the God of the Old Testament. We just read from Psalm 105 in our prayer meeting. We went back and that God, this God that we're speaking of now in the covenant that he made with Abraham and the way that even against all odds, God continued to fulfill his covenant to Israel in all seasons, even from its, when, before it was even a nation, when everything was still coming together, when, when, when they were facing famine, when they were in Egyptian bondage, over and over and over, it was God who says, I've done this, I've done that to bring you out of this by grace. Now in Revelation chapter 3, remember how Psalm 105 says, remember this God? It's because here God says, when he says, the one who is and who was and who is to come, he says, I'm that same God. And what I did in Israel's life, what I did in Moses' life, what I did in, in uh, Jacob's life, in Joseph's life, I've not changed. I'm still the same God, and I am telling you grace and peace. Same God who spoke to Moses and accomplished all of those things, I'm telling you right now, by grace, your circumstances may feel like there is no peace. I'm telling you, look to me. Peace. He's, God himself is speaking of his eternality here. When he says that he is the, the one who is and who was and who is to come, he's speaking that he's timeless. That the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. He, he dwells in eternity. And what John ultimately is saying is that God always is. He is the ancient of days, but don't take that to mean he's old. Don't take that to mean he's decrepit. Don't take that to mean that over 2,000 years just since this, that he's weakened. He is always, the God who is and was in Islam is always at the height of his perfections. Always. 
and in our circumstances. What a comfort it is to have that God say to us, I'm telling you. you your, your soul and the devil and the world may be telling you, I am not, that I've lost control, that I'm not on my throne, that the seed of the serpent is beating the seed of the woman. I'm telling you, I am. I always have been. And I always will be. And I'm telling you, grace and peace. We are prone to live so much of our lives without reference to God. We. I mean, we have our quiet time in the, in the morning or whenever we have it in the day. And we acknowledge God in prayer. But are we not prone to, once we get up out of those postures and life begins to unfold before us and we get that telephone call that gives us this news and that news, we're prone to forget in those moments that God is, that he is timeless. That the God that we read about just that morning and, and all his fantastic works in Israel and uh, bringing them out of Egypt and, and whatever, whatever the account is. That he, that God is timeless and sovereign and in control and has a plan and a purpose from before the foundation of the world because he's the architect. And so I can filter that phone call or that news or, or whatever's happening in my life through the lens of the reference point, and God is. He's at the center of this. He's at the center in this. And he's the God who always is. We cannot afford to get into a routine of life, though we all do it. As these downward days spiral out, to live without reference to God and his timelessness, and that he always is. And that what I'm going through, just as God was in control with John being banished onto the island of Patmos at 95 years old, isn't there a better use for that man? And these seven churches and all the persecution, isn't there, is that necessary? God is. And God is fulfilling his purposes. What John is conveying to the persecuted churches of his day and to you and I today is that all that lies ahead of us, even this week, whether it be to an extreme of persecution or imprisonment or torture or death or in more likelihood, you know, just some hardships, some afflictions, maybe some kind of sickness or illness, loneliness, alienation, that what he's trying to get at is that whatever happens, live with the reference point, God is. He always has been. He always will be. And he never forsakes the work of his hands. To quote one commentator, the cosmos is not empty, the ship is not rudderless, the universe is not throneless or kingless or governmentless. Life is not hopeless because God is. That's the salutation. John is writing to the church at, at Smyrna and Ephesus saying, in all of your hardship, grace and peace. Oh, and I don't mean that as just a, a pleasant how do you do. 
I mean that grace and peace in your circumstance because God is the one who is and was and is to come. He is in the midst of your affliction. He is in the midst of your hardship. He is in the midst of your persecution. And there is peace if you cling to the God who is in those circumstances. Do you begin to see that the salutation is not just a pleasant Good morning, I have a message for you. It is the gateway into the book of Revelation. But it's not just the Father. Look at verse 4 again. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And secondly, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, let me just kind of lay it out there. This can be interpreted in no other way then referring to the Holy Spirit. I will be dogmatic about that one. There will be other areas in Revelation. I'll allow you room to disagree with me, and we will be buddies. In this one, I'm going to be dogmatic. This is the Holy Spirit. It can be no other way. There is no indication in Scripture anywhere that grace and peace can come from anywhere or anyone other than God himself applied to our souls by the Holy Spirit. This cannot be, as some has taught, uh, angels or seraphim, seven seraphim, seven angels around the throne. Uh, this must refer to the Holy Spirit of God. So let's deal with the inevitable question. Are there seven Holy Spirits? And I hope you're beginning to read the book of Revelation as apocalyptic epistles. When we come upon seven, the number seven in Revelation, we understand there's symbolism there. And so, no, there are not seven Holy Spirits. John is once again, just as he did in the previous verses in talking about the seven churches. It is not by coincidence. He now speaks of seven spirits. It is because he's speaking of the perfections of the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And we talked last week about how this is not something that John is just plucking out of thin air, that the Old Testament is complete with evidences where the number seven is used to speak of fullness, of completion, of perfection. And he's picking up on that. But I want you to see, I, I want to be very diligent, to, to, particularly in light of some of the things we're looking at, to help you to see that these are not even just my own, I think this is the best way. Turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. And I think there's no doubt that John is alluding when he speaks of the seven spirits, using that symbolically to speak of the fullness of the person and work of the Holy Spirit, that he's alluding to something we see here. Here, Isaiah speaks of a sevenfold work of the Spirit of God, capital S, Holy Spirit. And he says here in Isaiah 11, 2, and the Spirit of the Lord, capital S, the Holy Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So that's the first aspect of the Holy Spirit described here. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom, that's number two. And understanding, that's number three. The Spirit of counsel, that's number four. And of might, that's number five. The spirit of knowledge, number six. 
and the fear of the Lord. Number seven. A sevenfold fullness, perfections of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Right there delineated. And not only there, we can turn over to Zechariah chapter 4. I won't ask you to turn there, but in Zechariah chapter 4, Zechariah provides us a picture with a, a seven-branched candlestick. And, and there God asks the prophet, do you know what this seven-branched candlestick is all about? And the answer there in Zechariah 4, around about verse 6, is not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. There, he, he says that this seven-branched candlestick is a symbol of the Holy Spirit pouring the oil into the church, the sevenfold fullness of the Holy Spirit. Turn to Revelation chapter 4. And this is why, again, one of the helpful things is to read through the book of Revelation in one sitting. I, try, I hope you've done that. I hope you'll continue to do that because you pick up on things that Oh, I'm going to see that later. And you begin to connect some dots. Revelation chapter 4, verse 5, another clear reference to the Spirit in these words. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Representing the Holy Spirit there. The language is very consistent, speaking of the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the fullness of his person and work in all of its diverse ways. And here, back to Revelation chapter 1, in this salutation, it's not only the Father, but it's the Holy Spirit who is presented as one who is involved in bringing us peace by grace in the midst of our circumstances. And the job of the Holy Spirit in the economy of redemption is to help appropriate Christ, to point us to Jesus, to look unto Jesus, to rest in Jesus, to take all that the Father, the architect of the plan of redemption, has planned from before the foundation of the world and which the Son has accomplished. The Spirit comes, takes out that heart of rebellion in the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, takes out the one that rebels, puts in one that believes, and turns our eyes Christward and says, cling to him, look to him. Here's the seed of the woman. Here's the one that was promised. The Holy Spirit comes and appropriates the work of redemption to our lives. And notice that this Holy Spirit in his full perfections in verse 4 Notice how he's described. This is so important for us. This is not just theology. This is practice. Where is he standing? Before the throne. That's all you mouth it. Before the throne. Before the throne of God the Father. And where Christ dwells as well on his throne. The Spirit stands in his sevenfold fullness. In his infinite godness, ever ready, ever eager to do the Father's will, to appropriate Christ to the life of the church, actively revealing Christ, actively applying Christ, actively taking us even in our situation and pushing us, saying, but look up, look to Christ. There is a promise by grace of peace through Christ. And it's the Holy Spirit who comes 
and who lifts us up in his infinite perfections before the throne, taking everything that the Father planned, everything that, the, that Christ has accomplished, and he's filtering it to you and I. It's intended to be encouraging. That no matter what persecution you face, no matter what hardship you face, the Holy Spirit in all of his ministry is a resource given to us to help bring us through. No matter what we face in 2018. No matter what the situation our church is in. No matter what situation your family is. No matter what situation you personally are in. It doesn't matter the ups and downs of life. And when I say that, please don't hear me being cavalier with your hurts. I'm putting it in the broader context of in light of the sevenfold fullness of the Holy Spirit and his work before the throne of God, if you are Christ's, you can say there is the infinitely authoritative, infinite, powerful fullness of God in the person of the Spirit who has been given you to help you in your moment of weakness. He is eager. He is ready. He is active. He is constantly pouring forth all of his resources to push you on to find that peace that is yours by grace through the finished work of Jesus Christ as ordained by the great architect of our faith, the Father himself. These are not merely nice words at the beginning of the book of Revelation. These are our very life that the very message he's presenting to us comes in the power of God the Father and is passed to us through the sevenfold fullness of the Holy Spirit. Do we realize, and I'll say I don't, but do we realize that to be a Christian means that God has given us himself through his Spirit at his disposal like a river that runs from the throne of God down to our lives with a, a rapid force, not just a stream, a rapid force of flowing, just of, of moving about the impurities, moving about our sin, moving about our past and our circumstances and delivering to us the peace of God by grace. It's what we, we see foreshadowed in Revelation chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the city, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There pictured for us the Spirit coming out from the throne of God into our lives for all eternity, pointing us to Christ, bringing us to Christ in all of his glory, in all of his greatness. That is the sevenfold perfecting work of the Spirit of God delivering to us Christ. It will be true for all eternity. And it's true now. That's the glory of being a Christian. With the gift of the Holy Spirit, you have this river of life flowing through. The problem is we live too often without reference to God and the work of the Holy Spirit. We have it up here, and sometimes in our quiet time, we even focus on the Holy Spirit, but we don't bring that to bear upon our hardships the way that John is doing here. But notice quickly, 
He speaks not only of the Father and the Son. Verse 5, grace to you and peace. Verse 5, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So there you have the fullness of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son coming last. And the descriptions we have of Christ here, they're, they're a little bit more elaborate than we've had in the previous ones. And it seems especially suited to, to assure you and I, who are in our hardships and afflictions and persecution, that even though I hear what you're saying, grace and peace, and, and, and I want to believe it, and I wanna, I, I'd like to apply, I just, listen, it's, it, it hurts. It's hard. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. On a Sunday morning, sounds good, I'll amen it. But man, it's, it's, it's just not real. These descriptions of Christ here are intended to help us overcome those thoughts that this is too good to be true. That this really couldn't be real help to my soul. The assurance is given in the descriptions that are to come. First, that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. The faithful witness from heaven. Oh, God speaks throughout church uh, history, has spoken through different methods in different ways. That's Hebrews chapter 1, spoken through the prophet, spoken through a burning bush, spoken through all the, but never has he ever spoken as eloquently or with greater finality than he has when he spoke through his son, Jesus Christ. He need not speak anymore because Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. Think about it in Jesus' own public ministry as he spoke to his disciples, as he spoke in the temple. Did he ever lie? Did he ever say anything that wasn't true? Did he ever predict something that didn't come to pass? Well, here, that same one is presented in the salutation as guaranteeing to you and I Everything that has come to pass and the promise of blessing for those who hear and who heed, the promise of peace by grace, I, the faithful witness to you who say that, I just don't know, I'm telling you right now, there is peace in this because the faithful witness tells us so. Now we can watch the news, we can read the newspaper, we can look at the internet, we can look at our lives as the, and try to discern the Bible being played out before our very eyes and it looks like things are getting derailed and sometimes it looks like our lives and our families are getting derailed and, and we begin to question how faithful the witness is. But do we have any reason to doubt the faithfulness of Christ on the evidence of what we have? Faithful witness has never lied to humanity. And God stamps this blessing of peace by grace. He stamps it with, the, with Jesus Christ himself. He goes on to give us another assurance that Jesus Christ being the firstborn from the dead. Well, how does that assure me more to fight for peace in the midst of my own hardships? Well, we know Christ died. And if he's still in the grave... He's a phony, right? The fact that he is the firstborn of the dead, simply meaning that he's the first to rise from the dead, different from people like Lazarus, because Lazarus, yeah, was certainly raised from the dead, but what? 
died again. What sets Jesus apart, he was the one raised to life forevermore. And John sees him in his resurrection. John has seen him ruling and reigning, living perpetually, and understands that because he is risen, we have every reason as he stands at the Father's right hand in his ascending grace to believe him. And then third, the Son gives us another assurance, or, or John gives us another assurance regarding Christ. He is the ruler of kings on earth. The fact of the matter, this message of grace and peace to the churches, to you and I, to our church, would be nice, a nice sentiment, but worthless if the union of the earth's powers at any point in earth's history could unite together in opposition of Jesus Christ and overthrow him, all right? If at any point, any, any forces of, of heaven and earth could gather together and overthrow the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, then hey... I appreciate your attempt to kind of encourage me with grace and peace, but you don't have the power to do it. John says, let me just kind of frame that for you. This Jesus is the king and the ruler of all of earth. There's no one who can overthrow him. In fact, and we saw this last week, even the seed of the serpent, they're doing Christ's bidding and in their warped heads, they think they're, they're doing their own strategy, their own tactic. They're pawns in Christ's hand. And that's part of the puzzle. While even in our hardships and afflictions, God comes in and says, here's the blessing. Peace to you by grace. Because everything that's going on in your life is not chaotic, unspiraling of just circumstance, random events. They are the chain events of the sovereign king of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, who rules over all things. You know, we're tempted, and we've probably done it multitudes of times when reading through the book of Revelation. We're tempted to treat this salutation, these opening words of grace and peace, of just little words we can skip over. Because I want to get to the meat. I want to get to the trumpets. I want to get to the bowls. I want to get to the, the judgment. I want to, say, I, I, want to, I want to rethink my charts and everything. Stop. Stop. This is the revelation about Jesus Christ to the church of Jesus Christ in a context of Genesis 3, suffering, persecution, hardship, affliction, charts, are no real help. <laughs> they look good on the wall. They're cool. I contend most of them are completely wrong. <laughs> the point is, blessing to those who hear and heed the message of revelation. That in light of all that you're going through, you have peace with God now and for eternity by grace through Jesus Christ. And the way for you to get through this season of your life until he comes again is to cling not just to words of grace and peace. Cling to your triune God, the architect, the accomplisher, the applier of God's grace. 
and to live daily. Keep in mind, the blessing of verse 3 is for those not just who hear, but who what? Heed the words of this message. What in the world would that mean in light of the salutation? I think the first is this. If there be anyone in this room who is still keeping King Jesus at arm's length, who's still resisting him for whatever reason, you're just not ready to repent, you're not ready to give up, you still have treasures in your life, you just don't like what it means to be a Christian, you're just not ready to lay hold, maybe being a Christian just seems like a drag. Heeding the message of revelation for you would be understanding, verse 4, there is grace and peace for those who believe. And you will either have that or you will have the opposite of that. The opposite of grace and peace is depicted, we, we saw it in Revelation chapter 6, when Christ comes. And the mightiest, wisest, strongest, most arrogant, most prideful seed of the serpent try to find the biggest mountain that they can crawl under and beg for the mountain to come and crush them because that is better than standing face to face with Jesus Christ the judge. You see, for the one who's still keeping Christ at arm's length, oh, there's blessing of grace and peace for those who repent and believe. But if you don't, it will be justice and wrath. And for those of us who are believers, what would it mean to heed the words of this salutation? I think it's to live on the fullness of God's triune being every single day. The Trinity is not just an abstract, transcendent doctrine that yes, it's above our minds, and yes, it's beyond our comprehension, but there are some things we can know, and there are some things we should cling to. And we as Christians ought to daily heed this message by clinging to this aspect. In the face of our persecutions, our trials, our hardships, the message of the salutation is God in His triune fullness is completely devoted to you. He has not abandoned you. He has not left you. He did not blink. He did not lose control. He is all of the distinctions of his triune existence. All of it is devoted to you. And what that would mean is daily walking in friendship. Not just in your quiet time. Please, when you hear me say that kind of thing, please don't hear me being condescending toward quiet time. Don't hear me being condescending toward reading your Bible. I'm talking about what we're prone to do is to walk out of those moments and live without reference to God the rest of the day. I'm talking about in the rest of the day, living in light of the Father. Continually, God, you are my Father, my timeless Father. And I read this morning about your fatherhood over Israel and what you did to bring them out of bondage and, and during season of famine. And God, you don't change. You're the God who was and is and is to come. And you're the same God. You, you, right now, you're there and you're here with me. And in their hardship and right here in my hardship. And you're the, what you are in their life, you are by covenant in my life as well. You have planned all that I will face this day. As I pick up the phone call, Lord, I don't get it. But you have somehow planned this out for your glory and my good. 
And so, Father, even in the midst of this, I turn to you and walk hand in hand with you, the architect of my life. It would be walking in fellowship with the Spirit of God. Holy Spirit, because of your proximity at the Father's throne, because you stand before there, and because you in your sevenfold fullness have been given an infinite supply of all of God's goodness and God's purposes to bring them to bear to my life. Oh, Spirit, I come to you and I pray. The Father has planned for me today. He has plans today that will unfold that right now I don't know. Some of them I will be joyful about. Others, my first instinct won't be to be joyful about. I pray you'll help me bring the, the throne resources of God to bear like a river crashing into my soul, driving out the impurities, driving out the sin, driving out my past, driving out the devil, driving out the voices, driving out my pride that feels so selfish and alienated and isolated that God you forget. And Lord, help me today to see this as whatever it is. This is God's plan. And he intends it for me. And in Christ, I have all that I need to walk obediently. Lift my eyes to Jesus. And then with reference to the sun, we wake up in the morning and we say, Sunday morning, Revelation 1, that was okay. I mean, I, I see it. Hardship, affliction, there's a promise of grace and peace, but I don't feel it. I don't feel it today. When we don't feel that peace in our soul, I'm right there with you. We turn to the sun and we pray, son, my elder brother, you are the faithful witness who's never lied. Everything inside of me is questioning this, but you're the one who's never lied. And you're the one who's been raised from the dead and are now before the father, representing me before the father in everything you're ruling over all the events of my life. So I will not despair. The wonder of the salutation here. Three persons in one God. Devoting all that they are. Covenanting with us. Saying in the midst of your persecution, hardship, affliction, you fill in the blank. We guarantee peace by grace if you cling to us because we bring you all that we are. We give you us. One God, when I say us, I'm making the distinction there. We bring you all that we are to bear into your life that you will not give up. You will not compromise your love for Jesus. Even in the midst of hardship, you will continue looking unto Jesus, hoping in Jesus, Resting in Jesus. Praise be to God who sits on the throne even as we live this Genesis 3 life.